Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Matamor Cronin, and Justin is out today, but we have the honor of having Michael Kipp, who is our first ever repeat guest. So Kip, it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for welcoming me back. Yeah, so for anyone who didn't hear the first two-part episode that we recorded with Kip, who is a biologist at the University of Washington, we recorded The Future of Life on Earth and The Future of Life Beyond Earth, which are really fascinating for anyone interested in Earth sciences or space science or how biologically the Earth is going to develop. But today we have a completely different topic. That topic is truth, and or you could look at it as lying. So before we get into all the different scenarios and how truth and lying may change with technology and why people lie, maybe from an evolutionary biology standpoint, any other interesting questions, I think it'd be good to just first frame why is this an important topic and then what is lying? So why do you feel that lying is an important topic for us to address right now? Um, yeah, I guess I could mention two sorts of reasons. The first is just from my perspective as a scientist, I essentially have the task of trying to uncover the truth about a given question, about a given topic. Um, in that sense, getting to the essence of the truth or avoiding lying consciously or unconsciously is, is critically important. It basically is the task. Mm -hmm. But I think, like you said, this is a timely matter because as we've seen in the last few years, the way that the uh, transmission of information through the internet and through you know, different news outlets, um, the way that that transmits things that are fully true, partially true, and discusses the truth or truthiness of those statements uh, is, is reaching a point where we, we clearly are in uncharted territory, I think. Right. The other point to consider is that truthfulness is different than what is actually the truth. So we can debate whether God actually exists, but we can't debate whether someone believes in God. If someone believes in God, they just believe it, and that's totally true for them, whereas it might not be true in actuality. So the truth is certainly important, but what we're focusing more on in today's episode is truthfulness. So people showing a version of reality to others that is different than their own internal version of reality. So you're basically creating a version of perceived reality that is deceptive in its core, which is what, what lying really is. Um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts about why lying may have developed in a biological sense. Um, I mean, I have some interesting data points on how people lie throughout their adolescence, um, unless you have some mm -hmm. thoughts to... No, no, I'd, I'd like to hear that. Yeah, so apparently the youngest that, that babies lie is at six months. So when you're less than wow. a year old, you still are lying. And people have seen this where a baby will start crying, and then it'll stop and look around and seeing if it's getting any attention, and then it'll keep crying. And they wow. say that at four, that's when you can actually start not just lying by your body language, but actually lying with your verbal language and manipulating people outwardly. Because they say that at four years old, that's when you first are able to model the mental states of others. And as it gets, as you get older, they say that by the time you're a teenager, you lie to your parents one out of every five interactions. 
And they say that even for any normal adult, when you're talking to a stranger in any given 10 minute conversation, you're going to lie three times. So the amount of lying through society is just insane. Um, that is just it's startling. Yeah. So I guess the, the first natural question is, is it wrong to lie? Is lying ever justified? So what's your philosophy on that? You know, that's a tough one to to answer with, with one statement or one decision. Uh, clearly, you can break it into different cases depending on what the motives are of the, the person lying or the, what they're trying to achieve. Um, but I think fundamentally, like you were saying in that, that last bit, the development of a child through the progressive stages of basically being aware of how to lie, the more awareness you have of the deception, the act of the deception, it, you clearly realize something you know, to that effect that you're doing something that has a negative impact on someone else. In other words, it is something that, you know, it, from a perhaps an ethical perspective, ought not to be done. Um, so I, I think, I don't know, it's right. difficult to, to spin it into a way to say when it is okay. And when it is not, I think without acknowledging first the, uh, the intentions behind the act or the, the context. Yeah. Intention and context are definitely important. And I think it's interesting that you distinguish between lying as a kid who maybe doesn't know better versus lying as an adult who already has learned the consequences or has learned that there can be bad consequences and has still chosen to lie. And, Jordan Peterson actually talks about the story of Pinocchio as a way of educating kids about this. And Pinocchio, mm -hmm. as being a puppet in the beginning of the movie, he's neither good nor bad. He's like an unmolded lump of clay. And that's why he's not that harshly punished when he first starts lying. But as he continues to lie knowingly throughout the movie, that's when he gets the real punishments of his nose growing longer and longer. And the nose growing longer and longer, it becomes more and more dire the more he lies and the more he knows that he shouldn't be lying but still does it anyways. And, you know, the other metaphor I've heard used is it's like a hydra. Every time you lie, you're, you're chopping off one situation and maybe making it a little bit easier for you, but then three new one, situations that you didn't expect arise and you have to lie about those. And it gets really tricky for people who are pathological liars to keep track of their whole web of lies and it's always growing. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. The the pathological cases versus the uh, the calculated single or one off instances. Yeah. Um, there's clearly a you know, a, well, yeah. Quite literally a, a pathological nature in some of these uh, instances where it's not the same sort of thought process going into doing so. And, it, but like you're saying, it can lead to this, uh, sort of chaotic, um, uh, spinning out of control basically. Yeah. And they've, they've even been able to measure the brain states of pathological liars versus non-pathological liars. And they had some really interesting findings. For instance, they found that people who were proven pathological liars, had 25% more white mass or white matter in their brain. And they had 15% less gray matter. And so white matter is basically where all the connections are made. So 
basically pathological liars are like Olympic athletes of cognitive dissonance. Like they're so able to hold two contradictory beliefs simultaneously that even they can deceive themselves to such a degree that you wouldn't be able to tell on a lie detector test that they're telling the tr- that they're telling a falsehood. Um, the wow. the difference with gray matter, which is actually where the processing power is done, so they have less gray matter, so they're less able to model what the world actually is like. So there's definitely a trade-off when you become a liar, and I, this is one of the key trends that I was thinking when I was thinking about this topic is that if you if your modus operandi for going through life is telling the truth, then you're dedicating so much of your mental energy towards modeling what is actually true in the world. And I know, I mean, since I've known you for so long, I know you're someone who lives your life that way. I know I try to live my life that way. But then when you have someone who models their whole mental energy uh, based on what is most advantageous for them, what would be the best reality for them, regardless of whether that's actually with the true reality that's out there? So this is a way of, it's like a lens of walking around through the world and you're just only thinking about, okay, someone just asked me a question. Rather than thinking about what's actually true, I'm going to think about what the best answer would be for that person to believe is true. And I, I mean, I know several pathological liars and I see this time and time again, even if it's something that is seemingly totally pointless, like, hey, where, where were you, man? You're supposed to be here like 30 minutes ago. I'd be like, oh, dude, there was just so much traffic. I, there was an accident and it was just and then like you can just look up. Was there a major accident? And you can see that it's false. And it's just there's no real advantage. They could have just said, hey, I'm really sorry, man. You know, I lost track of time or whatever it was. But even because there's however small of a hair of an advantage of saying some small lie or a big lie, that that will get you to do that if your whole worldview is about what's most advantageous to you, not what is just simply true. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot to uh, it's a lot to wrap your head around. I think to to try to put yourself into that that way of seeing things if it's not what you're used to to doing. Right. It, like you're saying, it it really comes down to uh, almost viewing every single interchange between people you know, in a fundamentally different way. Yeah, I think it would be useful now to just talk about how you can spot a liar because there has been this arms race between being a good liar and being a good lie detector that's happened throughout the entire animal kingdom so not just humans Uh, for instance there's this famous case of Coco the gorilla this like gorilla who was at a zoo and was pretty famous on social media and was famous because he befriended a kitten so of course that's like that's like the best social media fodder Um, but anyways, there's this famous case where he actually blamed the kitten for ripping out a pipe from the wall because he had learned sign language and he basically was like pointing at the kitten when the, when the zookeepers came and saw that the pipe for his water supply had been ripped out of the wall and he tries to blame the kitten. So it's not only something with humans, it's also with the animal kingdom, but but as far as how to spot a liar, I mean, do you have, I mean, you probably have some ideas just from your own life experiences. 
you know, it, it's tricky. I mean, these are things that, on a psychological level, people have spent a lot of time trying to sort out for, yeah, I mean, essentially going back before we even did it systematically in science, but just for your own survival. Um, and I, I don't know any, I can't chime in specifically to any of the, uh, you know, the neuroses or the telltale psychological or, uh, conditions basically that, are, that arise from this, mm -hmm. um, dissonance in your mind, but you can, I think, see it at least in the flow of arguments. Um, for instance, like you're saying in that pathological case of somebody who gives you the excuse that is very easily verifiable or, or falsifiable when you are putting yourself out there basically with something that is that, um, I don't know, easily fact checkable. Usually that's a way to, to garner some, some, uh, support basically some right. getting someone on your side. You'd see this tactic and I don't know, in, in anything ranging from a, yeah, it's almost a like debate. a, like a come at me, bro kind of yeah. mentality. So that, so giving, you know, checkable examples is definitely a good thing to do when you're trying to make your case. Uh, the, that also sort of on the, on the flip side is what makes it the pathological cases of lying. I think so distinct is that those will be offered up freely, uh, without any factual basis, things that right. are so easily. Um, so that is, so to, to turn this around then to spot, uh, lying when you're not giving specifics, things that can be basically citable pieces of information, um, that should always be a, a red flag. So that, that's something yeah. you should you should always be combing through a conversation to look for. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's certainly true. I mean, it reminds me of this supposedly one of the greatest liars of all time. I forget his name, but he was some guy that basically had swindled the bank of London out of just enormous amounts of money just through talking to them and lying and bullshitting, uh, basically. But he said that the best way to spot a liar is just like in theater, think about everyone's motivation. What do they want out of a certain situation? And then just frame it like how the liar would frame it, where you're basically thinking like, what's this motive? What's his reason for opening up his mouth and spewing words at me? And sometimes it's really easy. It's like, oh, there's a marketer or a spammer, an email spammer, or sometimes you don't know. Like, I remember I was on this train in London and this like, you know, this was, you know, when I was in college and this really attractive girl who was about my age came up to me and she was like, hi, how's it going? And I was like, hey, like, you know, it was a little, little weird, but I was like, hey, it's good. And she's like, oh, how was your day today? And I was just like, yeah, it was good. Like, you know, whatever. And then we were talking for a little while and I was always a little bit just like, what's her angle? What does she want out of this? And then finally she pulled out a clipboard and she was uh, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. And she probably genuinely oh. wanted to save my soul. So it was a good intentioned encounter from that point of view. Um, but if you just simply go about your life thinking about what motivation would this other person have, whether you're surfing the net or in real life or wherever, that's a good way to defend yourself. As far as telltale signs, the, uh, some of them are pretty counterintuitive. So most people think that, you know, the widespread belief is that if you're a liar, you'll blink a lot. 
But actually, studies have shown that good liars will give even more eye contact than is comfortable. Wow. Like they'll really look you in the eyes when they're lying. And sometimes it makes you a little uncomfortable. You're like, oh, shit, this guy really must yeah. feel strongly about this. I'm not going to push him any farther. <laughs> another another wow. misconception is that people will be really fidgety. And that is true for bad liars. But if you're a good liar, it's actually shown that you will have a very stiff upper body. So you're stiff. You look someone a little bit too much in the eyes. And the other interesting thing is you'll have more formal language. So like, mm -hmm. you know, one famous example, Bill Clinton, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. So one very common thing that, that researchers have found is that liars will not ever use contractions or casual talk. They'll use very, they wouldn't say like, I didn't sleep with her. Like that's what, that's what an honest person would say. Dude, I didn't sleep with her. I swear. But someone who's a liar will say, I did not have sexual relations and then also distancing with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Like, I didn't have sex with Monica, dude. Why do you keep asking me? Like, that's an honest way of, of saying it. Very interesting. Uh, I'd never thought about that one. That's yeah. an interesting point. Um, I, was, I wanted to go back to the one, to the point that you were making right before that, the, before the telltale signs, that basically the, thinking about people's motivation. Right, right. Uh, as far as sort of to flip this issue on its head and think for a second, not just about how do you spot a liar, but perhaps to the, uh, to the benefit of the, the listener as well, what are ways that you can effectively communicate that you are being truthful? Or that, hmm. for instance, it's not just enough that, uh, it's not simply enough, I think, in all cases, to give factual information or to tell right, the truth about right. something to win someone's approval. Uh, you need to get, it's a very psychological interchange, to get them to believe you. Right. And so I think you can flip that same thing on its head and by acknowledging that you have some motivation, that you have something you're trying to achieve outright, and then explaining how that is not biasing your point of view, I think is one of right. the strongest ways to get people on board with you. And I, I bring this up because you see it in the, in the scientific literature where I really am convinced more. Uh, I take people's statements with a little more weight when I see them expose their framework of thinking and their goals and their motivations and try to wrestle with how that might be biasing their right. Their, uh, Showing self-awareness is definitely a great tactic. Another, another tactic on the same lines is that you can hack human biology or biological urges to make something more memorable or in marketing, they call it more, more sticky. So rather than just saying like, oh, smoking cigarettes every day decreases your testosterone. So don't do it like, you know versus this ad campaign that was really famous that basically just showed a cigarette that had been burning so there was all ash and it was limp and it was like that <laughs> visual of just showing that you will have like a limp biscuit if you smoke cigarettes is so much more powerful than any number of stats you can give because it it taps into you know i mean your need for reproduction as along with your desire for survival 
those are like the two your two biggest biological drivers and by having something that's visual also just speaks volumes and then if you can back it up with data and if you can also like you said state your motivation like say hey this company was started by two people whose parents died of lung cancer so we're starting this and here's the methodology of the research so you, you know all of that stuff is great as support but as far as like what's the image that you're imprinting on the the monkey brains of everyone it, i think it needs to have that stickiness element as well mm -hmm. i agree that that's another important um point i i think what I'm getting out of this a little bit is that it's good, it's useful to be able to, you know, spot when somebody is lying or to be aware of their motivations, things that may keep them from telling the whole truth, if not you know, deliberately being deceptive. Um, well, one thing I would hope to, you know, know that comes out of this uh, exercise of us discussing this is that we could e help equip people basically with the, the toolkit. What is it that you are looking for or what is it that you should be thinking about when you're listening to somebody speak or when you're watching an advertisement or when you're right, reading about right. a product? Uh, what are the questions? So you know, either psychological things, behaviors are looking for or more so questions that you should be asking uh, right. about a flow of logic that you should be always be skeptical and critical until your questions are met um right I, so well i remember sort of that in in my high school we had a class where when you're citing sources for any research paper you had to fill out this form that says okay who is this source what is their like their agenda you know do they have a mission statement are they reputable you know do they have how many monthly visitors do they have all those metrics are really important um, and I think in today's, especially online, it's really easy to give the facade of having lots of information to back it up without actually having it. Like, so for, for instance, one thing that I've heard uh, talked about is the blue link is so powerful visually. So if you're reading an article and it's like research shows and then the word research is highlighted and, and hyperlinked. So it's blue mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, shit, it's hyperlinked. I mean, this must be some legit stuff. Most people will never click on those hyperlinks. But the fact that it is yeah. hyperlinked to something makes it seem much more credible. So that it's it's a really it is sort of a wild west right now as far as online. And I have a lot of thoughts around, you know, advertising and, and marketing. Um, but I, before we get into that, I'd like to just get your thoughts on academia, because that's the world that you um, you know, primarily function within. So how do you view lies and truthfulness in the realm of, of academia and being honest with, with research papers and, and all those sorts of things? Mm -hmm. That That's a great question that I could go on for a long time about. Um, I first just want to probably make one small or I guess huge, but I'll make it a brief distinction. Uh, and that is about what one is actually doing as a scientist or as an academic who's doing research, there's often this impression that the general public has that a scientist is proving things or discovering things or finding out what is true. When in fact, if you actually break it down logically to the things that is, are actually being shown by any given set of experiments, we actually cannot prove 
anything ever right, to be true. Right. What the scientific enterprise does instead is falsifies hypotheses. It basically takes scenarios and says, can we prove this to not be true? Right. And if not, then you are basically giving some null hypothesis or something, whatever your working hypothesis, then your theory, then if it's not falsified uh, in, in the Right. So rather than science, science figuring out what is true, it figures out what isn't true. And by yes, doing and so, it figures out what isn't not true, at least as so far as we know. <laughs> so, yeah, essentially, that's a really inefficient way of doing things. If you consider the infinite possibilities of what's not true and the fact that there's only one, I guess, you know, one full set of truths, right. uh, however complex it is. But what the whole business then of science is, is coming up with creative ways to basically back into a, the smallest possible set of possible truths by carefully constructing experiments to rule out large amounts of parameter space. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that, I guess, is just one important distinction that I think everyone knows. I mean, not even just scientists. A lot of people know that. But it is really hard, I think, to keep in the front of your mind as you're doing work when you're You've, you will see it in the language used in papers where you will say, and this shows, this proves. Right, that this is, right. It's, um, it, it's just something, it, it's a yeah, healthy dose of skepticism there. Um, that aside, the larger question, I guess, about honesty or about lying or about truthfulness in, in communicating the, the findings of research, uh, I think is extremely important. Um, I would guess that most people don't have any intent to, uh, you know, consciously lie about their research findings. You just you don't really see that. Um, that that's for the best. But what can be more subtle is going back to what you were saying before: having a motive to do something, to have a, right. a high impact story, to have a a lot of publications, to have something applicable to a, a hot topic. Uh, can cause all sorts of you know, less than, uh, I would say, less than robust conclusions or stories to mm. be perpetuated. And so that's, I think, always something to, to keep in mind. And, and one thing I always go back to, uh, I may, we may have discussed this in, in college even, there's this great book, one of many great books by Carl Sagan. This one's called The Demon-Haunted World, uh, mm. Science as a Candle in the Dark. What he basically does there is outlines what science truly does, what its role is in the modern world, and how to best go about doing it. And there's a chapter in there that's become the basis for a lot of science classes, science philosophy uh, seminars ever since. It's called The Fine Art of Baloney Detection. <laughs> and he has a baloney detection kit. All of these different things that they sound convincing. But when you break it down logically, it is not uh, it is not sound. So, for instance, one of his uh, principles, and these aren't things that he's necessarily uh, coming up with from scratch. He's he's pulling from right. a lot of great minds. But he discusses how arguments from authority, for instance, carry no oh, right, weight. Right. But it may give the impression when you're reading it that you cite an authoritative source or a good publication, hmm. and it's it's right uh, or uh, ad hominem. Attacks. So these, you know, going right. back to a lot of philosophical uh, um, ideas uh, about just 
Like you, you went to a nice school growing up. Why is anyone supposed to listen to you? Like, that's like a common, I mean, I've heard that expressed about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, where, you know, they're like, oh, she says she's from the Bronx. She actually went to some nice private school. And then you look back and she had actually said like, oh, yeah, part of my big lesson growing up was the dichotomy between where I lived and taking the bus to my private school and wanting to bridge that gap. Um, Yeah. So and then all of a sudden you're distracted from whatever you were discussing before. And a lot of times you may never even come back to the issue being debated. So uh, these things, they can be at worst, I think, deployed consciously and very misleadingly. Right. But I think what often happens is that since they hold weight with our some part of our uh, our psyche not right. just the purely logical side but the emotional uh, well, bit of us we we do them sometimes without meaning to right i mean these are i've talked about this in the future of advertising but the six principles of influence robert cialdini you can basically get people to do whatever you want if you master these six principles which one of them is authority the other one is scarcity, like, you know, only 10 items remaining, buy now. The other is social proof, like, you know, thousands of, of uh, studies were done on this topic. Um, you know, I won't list all of them here, but you should, anyone who's interested should read Influenced by Robert Cialdini. And as you were talking about these different methods of garnering credibility where there actually is none, another thing I was reminded of is, People will often, if you're a liar, you will use words like believe me or like to be honest, to be quite honest. I mean, one of Trump's favorite sayings is believe me. Um, And one of Nixon's favorite sayings was in all candor. Um, And it's like, dude, if you're always honest, there's no need to qualify any statements and say to be honest, because that assumes that you were lying previously. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Yeah, all sorts of subtleties that go into um, not just, well, from the delivery side, not just about whether you're telling the truth or being, uh, giving less than the full truth, but also that influence our perception of it. And it, I think the, the most frustrating thing that I would, in my lifetime, like to do something to, uh, to work on repairing is that interchange between the two parties involved where if one is delivering factual information that the recipient should be able to intuit that and work with it and go from there uh, effectively basically we shouldn't have to worry about right. transmitting truthful information out there that is just not taken credibly um, but that I think will happen when you're surrounded by well a I guess surrounded by enough uh, information that is not credible or B, when people aren't equipped with the, their own toolkit for making their own decisions about what they take to be true and not, instead of relying, like we were just saying, on authority, which is not um, right. not tantamount to truth. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like game theory, right? Or the prisoner's dilemma, where there is this temptation to lie because you will get a great outcome if you lie. Like in the prisoner's dilemma, if you give up your partner from the diamond heist, and your partner doesn't say a word, then you'll go off scot-free and he'll get 10 years in jail. Whereas if you both confess, you'll get some medium amount. And if 
you don't confess, but your partner does, then you're screwed. Then you're going to be in jail for 10 years. So it's tempting to, um, you know, it's tempting to, to lie, I guess. But in the prisoner's dilemma scenario, the best outcome is actually to tell the truth in all cases. That's the stable outcome. Because if you confess and say, yes, I did the heist, no matter what your partner does, that outcome is better than the alternative if you just tally up like the years in jail. So it's interesting that there is this temptation to get the best possible outcome by lying, but the odds are that you're going to be better off if you just tell the truth. And they've actually done simulations of this with iterative game theory, where they won't just play the game once, they'll play it iteratively with memory. So you can remember what the person did to you last time. And you basically have the option of like, okay, you can defect or you can uh, collaborate. Um, and they found that the best, the best uh, strategy is just tit for tat. Basically, you just do whatever the other person did to you last time. So if the other person screwed you over last time, then you just don't do business with them this time. If the other person was trustworthy with you last time, then you can be trustworthy with them this time. And this is the stable state until it reaches a certain tipping point. When it reaches a certain tipping point where there are more defectors than collaborators, then you actually would be uh, at a loss if you were someone who just like does the right thing. So it's interesting that what we see through game theory is that there are these two stable states, one where it's a lot better to collaborate with people and tell the truth and be honest. But there's another stable state where basically everyone's deceiving everyone else. And that seems like a way worse world to live in. That is interesting. This sort of mentality of I have to do it or else I fall behind. Um, Once you reach that tipping point, it's sort of reminds me actually of uh, if you think back to the 1990s when major league baseball got taken over by people who were basically cheating the game lying because they were taking performance enhancing drugs and it reached the point where i think there were considerations of well if i don't do this i fall behind basically that sort of game theory decision making where right, obviously right. Would be the best possible scenario if everyone was on board doing the same thing, which is telling the truth, regardless of what you're doing, whereas there's no cheating or lying in that situation. But once you reach this critical point, I think maybe more and more people would tend to uh, to take the, the lying route. Right. And so much of it depends on how your brain is formed through your childhood and adolescence. So if you grow up with being rewarded by getting away with your lies, and if that becomes the norm somehow then that could just lead to a world full of liars. Whereas if people continue to do a fairly good job parenting and instilling the truth, you know, not perfect, but pretty good, then we'll have a more normal world like we live in today. Um, So we've already talked a little bit about academia. There are some other areas of lying that I want to get into. And I think it'd be good just to talk about the most innocuous case and then the most extreme case. And just is it okay to lie? Because, you know, the classic example of, you know, let's say Anne Frank is hiding in your attic and the Nazis come to your door and they say, hey, is Anne Frank hiding here or do you, are you hiding any, any you know, Jewish people? Um, you know, the classic example, I mean, I've heard this in my high school class and whatever, is you say, oh, yeah, of course it's okay to lie in this case. 
But I actually like Sam Harris's argument on this case. I mean, he actually wrote a whole book about online where he says, yeah, it's true that it might be your best option to just say, no, she's not here. If you really think that that's going to give you the best possible outcome, but you're basically just passing the buck on by, by not telling them your actual point of view. If instead you said something like, you know what, I wouldn't tell you she was here, even if she was, because I don't agree with this policy and I'm a good German citizen and I've, I've been here for years and how dare you come here and ask me. And, you know, that might, you know, first of all, you're not actually lying there. And by confronting the person about the moral dilemma, you are, you know, you're taking on some of that weight in combating deception that otherwise would have had to be done by someone else. You know, it's like everyone can't be afraid to 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 tell someone what they really think. I mean, at the very least, like the cops, when they bring you with the murderer in, they got to tell you, hey, this isn't OK. What you did is wrong. Or the judge has to tell you, like the buck has to stop somewhere. And I also think those cases are they're just so extreme that people rarely, if ever, will even be faced with them in their life. So I think they're more of a distraction. Do, do you pretty much agree with that? It's a tough one to to think about if because going back to that example, I mean, every piece of me just feels and thinks that, OK, there's nothing ethically or psychologically or even just uh, wrong with the, the motives of that lie there. Um, but that's maybe that's 2020 hindsight. Maybe that's such an extreme example. Um, I, I'm not the logician. Who, who could sort that out? But you raise an interesting point about just passing the buck. And you see that with lying in any instance, uh, in any fable or in any situation that anyone's ever had through their own experience, it, it doesn't, it, it will get propagated up until a point where the buck stops and it can oftentimes be worse than addressing something up front. So, uh, yeah, right. I don't know about that one though. I, on that thought experiment still, I don't think I could, I could, uh, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I, I guess the point that Sam Harris makes is that there should be a higher spot on the moral landscape for telling the truth and having a good outcome versus lying and having a good outcome. Yeah, I would agree with that. So let's go to the goal should be right. Right. So let's go to the most innocuous case then. So that's like the most extreme case. And I agree with you. It's probably acceptable for a lot of cases, but for certain, it, but it also would be ideal if you could tell the truth and still have a good outcome. So that's what, that's what we think about the most extreme. So let's take instead a white lie. Like, you know, if um, your friend says, hey, do I, do I look fat in this dress or something? You know, do you, and like she, let's say she actually does look fat in it and she's, she's actually gained some weight and you're actually a little bit concerned about her health, frankly. Um, let's say she's a platonic friend. Um, you know, should you just tell her, yeah, you look great? Or should you say, uh, you know, I think uh, you could do to lose 20 pounds. I mean, you know, it sounds horrible because it's so against our social code. But in situations mm -hmm. like that or another case, let's say your friend gets you a present and it's this like scratchy poncho that they got from Mexico and you're never going to wear it. But but, you know, they're like, oh, do you like it? Do you like this present? I got it for you. It's handmade. Do you like it? 
like, what are you going to say? Are you going to say, oh, yeah, I love it. And then, you know, stress out about having to wear it the next time you see her. Or are you going to be like, look, you know, like, I, I can't pull this off. Like, I really appreciate the gesture. Um, but just letting you know, like, I don't think my personal style, I can pull this off or whatever. Like, how would you deal with yeah. those white lie situations? Those are tricky. And uh, so I would say, um, first off, you know those people in your life who have what we would just call a brutal honesty. Mm. Um, and I think in most of the cases, when someone is about to introduce me to their friend and they say, this is so-and-so, he's brutally honest, just so you know. Right, right. I usually tend to like that about the person, even though it may, in some cases, create an uncomfortable social situation. Yes. Um, but that's a that's a hard thing to do. I would love to say I could to master right. that because, like we're talking about, uh, telling the truth is is optimal. Well, they're often the but funniest think, people too. The most honest people are often, usually absolutely hilarious and wry and sarcastic. The truth is and, what's fun. Yeah. So uh, I I agree with all that, but I think also there's room for success short of being that brutal, um, which is just to be careful that what may seem like the white lie of just the easiest thing saying, Oh yeah, you look great. Or yeah, I love it. Uh, definitely can accumulate to a, become a situation that is not what you intended to do. Basically what you're intending to do is to make this person happy. Basically that's your social impetus right there. Um, but it could build up to somebody having a, a inaccurate self image or a, inaccurate point of view of what you like. Maybe they go back and they get you another one of those ponchos right. sometimes so to tactfully respond with some truth that is also within the realm of uh, socially being pleasant. Uh, that That's maybe the, the other way around it. Because I, I definitely would um, feel myself trying to avoid giving in to the, the easy route there, knowing now that it, it can have those negative long-term effects right i actually remember um maria had said that i forget what it was exactly i think it might have been mickey mouse but when maria was like you know two or four or something she said something once that she liked mickey mouse or Minnie mouse and then for like the next 12 years of her life her grandma got her nothing but mickey mouse stuff and she really like didn't even like it at all ever that much um it might not have been Mickey Mouse, it might have been something else. But anyways, the point is, is that by not confronting that situation early on, you create this mm -hmm. whole world of untruths where it's just uncomfortable and you got to act a certain way and you feel weird. And it definitely doesn't bring people closer together. It brings them a little bit farther apart. So Absolutely. I think like with, you know, with friends and loved ones, I mean, I, I very much believe that honest people are a refuge and it's just, you can have a sigh of relief when you're talking to someone who you know to be honest. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would agree. And, you know, I mean, there is some room for, let's say you're interpreting the situation with the dress where really your friend just wants to be reassured. They've already chosen their dress. They've already taken the Uber to meet you. Um, you know, they're not really asking your opinion. They more just are saying, hey, do I look pretty, basically. In that case, if that's truly what you believe, then I think it's fine to assuage them or assuage them. But if you think they actually want your opinion, I don't think you're being a good friend if you're not telling them the truth as you see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
that there is some of that reading the situation. Yeah. So, okay. So we've talked about friends, lovers. Um, we've talked about academia with business. I think it's, I mean, business definitely has a lot of deception going on, especially with negotiations. So negotiation is all about jockeying for position and modeling the mental states of others. And whether you're just like, you know, selling your couch on an app or whether you're doing, you know, multi-billion dollar international business deals, it's all the same of the same sort. And I think the more that you do business with the same people or even in the same industry, because a lot of industries are really small and everyone knows one another, people will sniff out who is the liar and who are the honest negotiators. And the honest negotiators will typically have a much better outcome. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that wholeheartedly because Trump is probably one of the biggest liars on the face of the earth and he made it all the way to the presidency. So it's, you, it's hard to say until this story reaches its conclusion that liars never mm -hmm. prosper or cheaters never prosper. Um, so I guess we'll have to revisit that at the later. The day. long run is always the the telling one, and I agree with you that it could it happens in any field, be it academic or business, or if you're in medicine or law, you're, you're an engineer, a programmer, an artist, even the the truth I think is what people are always wanting from you, mm. and if you're not giving it to them, it may seem in some cases advantageous, but I think that's a a short term thing or. A, a case by case thing, whereas in the long run, what all of these professions are relying on is just, you know, reliably sharing or generating factual information. That's those are right. the people you can count. You'll go do business with them if you can trust them. Right. So. And I, I think it's really powerful to admit when you have fucked up in a business mm -hmm. context, in a relationship, in a friendship, whatever it is, if you say, hey, I fucked up. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I mean, that's like the best way to just turn over a new leaf in any situation if you actually believe that that is what happened. Um, so I think people Absolutely. are much more forgiving than we give them credit for. And I think like that's why people say the cover up is worse than the crime so often. Like, for instance, with Bill Clinton, I mean, just imagine if the first time Bill Clinton got accused of getting a blowjob from Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office, he just completely owned up to it and said, like, hey, I sincerely apologize. This did happen. I'm a man. I have urges. I was not using my proper judgment at that time. I sincerely ask the American people for their forgiveness. And this in no way impedes my ability to govern the country. Like if he had said something like that, his approval ratings probably would have gone up. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, certainly he wouldn't have gotten impeached. It showed time and time again that if you're honest and you ask people for forgiveness and if you own up to it, you'll have a much better outcome. I agree. Cool. Well, let's, I think we should now, we've talked a lot about some different questions surrounding the issue. I'd like to get into future scenarios. So given mm -hmm. the changes with technology, politics, global climate change, all the different key factors. Let's go into the worst case, best case, and most likely future scenarios 
right after this break. All right. So, Matt, what would you say is the worst case scenario for the future of truth or the, or the future of lying? Worst case scenario. So I think the worst case scenario would be if a state that does not value free speech and free thought, such as China or Russia or Iran, becomes the first artificially super intelligent nation and then uses that power to prevent people from speaking the truth about how they think the country, the government, the world should be. So this is already the case in China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, other states, where you can't just write an op-ed saying that the way that the government is governing is terrible and it would be a lot better if we had a democracy, for instance. You just can't do that. I mean, you'll just you'll get put in the back of a trunk and go get sent to a re-education camp. So if that became the global norm, and I think what would allow that to happen would be if they became artificially superior to the rest of the world in order to solidify their power, that would be a terrible scenario. The only thing I could think of that would be worse than that, so the only thing that would be worse than like a 1984 scenario where you can never speak out about the government or actually say what you believe, the only thing worse would be if you didn't even have the possibility of thinking freely. So for instance, in a far future scenario, if let's say they genetically engineered people or maybe through like, you know, brain nanosurgery or whatever, were able to somehow either rewire your brain or maybe like get the ratio of white matter to gray matter in such a way where your ability for cognitive dissonance and the education that they pound into you from an early age leads to the sort of mind where you wouldn't even question the gut, like you wouldn't even have the ability to question the status quo anymore. That's the only thing I could see that's worse than the Big Brother, North Korea, China scenario. Uh, but the problem when I was thinking about this is that the worst case actually seems more likely with this topic than with some of the other topics. Because, you know, I mean, America's had a lot of challenges lately and a lot of signs point to China being the dominant force in the world by the year 2050, you know, certainly by the year 2100. And unless they change their value system, they don't value free speech. They don't value free thought. They don't value the truth as much as they value what is, quote unquote, good for the collective whole, like what is good for the Communist Party and therefore the People's Republic, quote unquote, of China. So I think the worst case is unfortunately pretty likely. Wow. That's pretty heavy. I had a much milder view, I guess, as usual, for what is possible, what is the worst possible scenario, but uh, sort of tragic in a sense, because what I was envisioning is the worst case is a world in which we just don't know what to make of a totally saturated or super saturated information market where there is so much information to sift through spanning the whole range from absolutely 180 degrees from true to totally reliable and everywhere in between. If you're so saturated by it and there's no 
efficient you know, AI algorithm or search engine that can sort through it for you or sort those by, uh, by their veracity or something, that we could just have this deluge of information that to most people about most topics and most days, we wouldn't be able to know what is actually going on. Right, it's like um, choose your a, own reality. Really yeah, that would be a very disorienting world, and would be very bad for you know social cohesion, or let alone on a global scale to solve the sorts of international and global you know, issues that are we're going to have to tackle. So that one uh, would would be scary. Yeah, what do you think is the but, best case scenario? Best case scenario. The best case then would sort of take that problem and flip it on its head. I would really be excited to know that there's a future coming in which AI in whatever capacity, be it search engines like we have now or be it your you know handheld assistant or whatever, can help people get to the bottom or the factual basis mm. of a given question very efficiently. Um, for instance, the sort of example we see uh, occurring during presidential debates and other debates uh, for political office is that there will be this fact checking going on. You I can love keep that. up on Twitter and you can, you know, different places on the names. internet. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really nice that that can be done in nearly real time now in a lot of cases, which is very cool. But imagine if it was done at, you know, AI speed uh, with extreme high fidelity. Uh, where it's actually digging up really, you know, top-notch, credible information uh, right. in a way that, and presenting it in a way that's easy for us to make sense of. Um, well, the, the difficulty put, is that if, even if you have that annotated fact-checking of a speech that a politician is giving in real time, the current status quo is that you can still find a source that's going to contradict that no matter what the point is. I mean, even if they say that when you drop an apple, it falls and hits the ground, you're going to find some source online that'll say, oh, no, it actually floats up into the sky. So there's no real authority on the truth right now. So in your best case scenario, is there some authority on the truth where basically everyone has agreed that you just, these statements, or maybe we don't all agree on the truth, but maybe we agree these statements are simply false. And anyone who says them, like, okay, yeah, believe whatever you want, but it's not going to make its way into the public sphere or into law or into any of that kind of stuff. Is, is that sort of along the lines? Or would you still have it this, like, Wild West truth environment? Well, yeah, that's tricky because I, part of me is hesitant to have any authority on dictating the truth. Um, but trying to come up with some metric is equally difficult. So, you know, you couldn't simply go by a number of articles that have a certain point of view because then there would be a strategy to put out right. thousands of articles just like these, you know, Twitter bots and this and that. And it would skew your analysis. And so, but then you don't want to put authority in single uh, uh, sources because that's not equivalent to truth. Uh, they could have a given story that was just falsely reported. I so mean, what, what if really we had some system... Situation. You know, just spitballing here, but let's say we have some way that an AI can perform scientific experiments at scale way more quickly than human researchers could. And for something to be in the canon, as as far as we know, this is true information. Like, you know, let's start with gravity. Let's start with like the most basic, you know, 
evolution, whatever, and then building from there, um, you know, couldn't we basically have some algorithm where if this AI researcher bot has run the experiment over 1 million times and never found it to be false, like that's the minimum criteria to be in this, in this canon. Like, I feel like we could maybe not with today's technology, but maybe with, you know, within the next five or 10 years, or we could maybe come up with some way of at least beyond a reasonable doubt, knowing that something is true, or maybe, maybe we have some nonprofit, whether it's government or an NGO, that all they do is they check things in an unbiased way and they're funded and like Congress can't touch their funding and their sole mission is just to find out what is true and they have no other agenda. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, I would like to see definitely some development in that direction. And just to close on, on my best case scenario then before getting onto yours is just point out something that occurred to me when you were just saying what you were. Uh, which is that it feels, I think, to us right now, like we're at this point of reckoning where, oh, it's gotten so bad with the the degree of truthfulness, say, in the political arena or just in the transmission of information in the news, for instance. Uh-huh. But actually, what, what I'm getting the impression of is that perhaps we're actually just becoming more and more clearly aware of how bad it is. Whereas if you think back to the world pre-social media, where you can't just crowdsource thousands, if not millions of opinions at a moment's notice, you just absolutely had to go by what whoever the talking head on the screen was saying. And if you're going to go against it, you had to wait for a newspaper to or do some actual research in a library to figure it out or somehow get an audience with somebody who's highly informed. So I think what we are experiencing is the maybe this reckoning getting close because we have much more information to work with. We can crowdsource people's opinions in real time, right? Um, so that, it's that much more chaotic, right? It's much more chaotic now, but there's a lot more possibilities for discerning the truth than there used to be. Like if you were yeah, to view so this as a simulation, it would almost be like a small clustering of beliefs, and then once the information age hits, it just explodes and it's totally chaotic. But I imagine that eventually it'll reach some more clustered state once it once we begin to make sense of the internet. I mean, it's it's easy to forget that the whole system of the internet being based on the World Wide Web, www, like ahrefs, and like the whole way it's set up is all very very new. I mean, this is basically our first go at organizing the world's knowledge, and it's by no means our last. Mm-hmm. So I, that is, to me, a reason to be a little more hopeful uh, yeah. about the future of truth. But let's hear what you have to say then. Yeah, so my, my best case scenario is very similar to yours. And I actually believe that we can program an AI to discern the truth, not in a way where it's like, OK, no one's, you know, you're going to get put to death if you ever lie or, you know, everyone has to believe this. But it's more just about putting some boundaries on what is true. Like in my scenario, the Parkland shooting parents getting harassed online because of some conspiracy theory, like that, that just, that wouldn't happen because the AI would be able to tell beyond a reasonable doubt, like, okay, let's, oh, you think Pizzagate is real? Like we can actually just go, you know, we can actually zoom in with heat maps and tell that, oh, there actually isn't even a basement there. Boom. Fact checked. 
So I think with our capabilities and how much things are being tracked and analyzed, we're going to be able to discern the truth pretty much 100% in the near future um, as far as what people actually do, as far as what people believe, like their internal thoughts. I think that's going to take more time. That's going to be more into the far future. So if we get into the far, far future, people are going to, there's going to be mind reading technology, some sort of it. I mean, we already have brain scanners and eye trackers and some other stuff being developed right now. So in the far, far future, it's, it's hard to say. But what my best case scenario is, just to summarize, would be if we programmed a coherent extrapolated volition into an AI so that it can figure out what we want, where our wishes converge in a way that protects us from the worst demons of our nature. It doesn't necessarily all push us towards one stream of us all being in the same way, but it keeps the boundaries so that we don't have the worst inclinations of one another where it could be avoided. And this idea of, of coherent extrapolated volition has been talked about since the 80s. I mean, for how do you program a utility function into an AI that gives us a result that's not death and extinction for everyone? And the language that he used, I absolutely love. It's So our coherent extrapolated volition, this is a quote, is our wish if we knew more, thought faster, were more the people we wished we were, had grown up farther together, where the extrapolation converges rather than diverges, where our wishes cohere rather than interfere, extrapolated as we wish that we had extrapolated, interpreted as we wish that we had interpreted. So if we programmed, and again, translating these words into code is another challenge, but let's say we're able to do that. And then this AI basically figures out what we truly want in our deepest sense of the word and is able to create some boundaries for us so that it focuses on maximizing human freedom without harming others. So my best case scenario, you can believe whatever the hell you want. You can say whatever you want. You can even lie. I don't think lying should be forbidden so long as you're not harming others. So the main difference between best case scenario now is that you wouldn't be able to have these lies at the society-wide level or at the level of government or politics or any sort of um, laws or, or rules. You would only have lying in the personal sense and people would be really good at detecting who's a liar, who's not, and, and everyone can live their own life. So that's my best case scenario. What do you think is the most likely case scenario for the future of truth and lying? Most likely scenario. Most likely. Well, things that we already see happening, for instance, on the, the fact-checking front, I think we're only going to get more efficient at that, at our ability to expose truths or, I guess, more so expose lies at, at real time. Um, and help people sift through what can otherwise be murky uh, information when it comes to important things like uh, political discussions and social uh, issues that have real impacts for people's lives. So I would first off like to see that uh, that, that continues where it's headed, and I think, I think that's likely. Um, and yeah, I think 
overall, um, as to the reality of these these more negative effects, like you're saying, the uh, the inability maybe for people in some places or in in a future in in a lot of places to to actually express their thoughts or be in coherence with you know what is true to them. Mm. Um, I you know I'm I'm always I guess the cautiously optimistic one here in thinking that yes there's there's a lot of concerning uh, trend towards that that sort of a world in a, in a lot of places and that's uh, doesn't seem to be slowing down where it is but I think in, in the most likely sense I don't think that's going to take over uh, you know being the, the dominant worldwide condition at least in, in the extremely near future but what do you have to say about yeah, that? Yeah, well, I, I agree. I don't think it's going to be the dominant the dominant case that people are always deceiving one another. I do, however, think that the most likely scenario is that there are essentially two camps of people in the future. There's the camp of people that are sort of all on the same page, that are really trying to push the limits of truth and beauty and science and understanding and all of that. And for those people, hopefully it's all or most of the elites that are in this group, we're going to have immense flourishing and we're going to make incredible discoveries. I think there's going to be another camp of human society that's going to be the choose your own reality camp. So these are people that they would rather believe something that's different from what we know to be true. They would rather go off in their virtual reality worlds and their sites that tap into their you know, you know innate you know, the worst demons of their nature, like racism and be it bigotry and fear of others and just wanting really simple explanations and not wanting things to be complex and just having the comfort of whatever belief system you had ingrained in you at an early age and not wanting to question things too much. I think there's going to be a sizable portion of society that is going to be in that camp. Um, and I guess the the big determining factor is going to be whether the people who are in the on the same page of what is true if those people make the rules or, or if it's the like one subsegment of the choose your own reality camp that makes the rules then we're in big trouble but overall i think we are going to have a a more optimistic outcome where by and large people will be on the same page as far as the truth and lying are concerned I'd like to think so as well. Awesome. Well, there's just one final question that I want to end this podcast with and because I realized we didn't get to it and that is Santa Claus because this is one of the most <laughs> talked about topics in lying. Is it okay to lie to your kids about Santa Claus? What are your thoughts? You know, I, I revisited this question again with the, the most recent uh, Christmas season. And I got to say, I'm more stumped on that one than ever before. Mm. Um, based on everything we've been discussing, I, I came down pretty firmly on the side of you should minimize any sort of lying. Uh, it overall, should be you know something you program pretty high in your your behavioral code. Um, but I try to think back on negative effects personally of that having happened to me and. It was a positive experience. It, maybe there is this uncomfortable time where you sort of knew and you didn't know how to approach your parents. But the net effect, as I perceive it, this at this point, 
is positive. Um, so on that front, I can't I can't say I disagree with it. But I, I'd be really interested to hear what you think because I I don't know I don't know what I would do. Yeah, well, I don't actually have that firm of a thought on this. I, I guess I guess I'm a little bit firm in that. I would never actively lie to my kids about Santa Claus, no matter what. Now, I'm married to someone who very much wants to continue the tradition of Santa Claus. So for that reason, I think our kids probably will end up believing in Santa Claus. But for me personally, I'm never going to like if my kids ask me, hey, daddy, do you believe in Santa? Is Santa real? I'll say something like, well, lots of kids believe in Santa, you know, uh, like I'll never tell them a lie in that regard, but I'm not going to also burst their bubble because it's important to my wife and, um, you know, Mm -hmm. my parents are fairly Christian and all that. Um, But like, let's say I married someone who shared my belief that you just shouldn't really lie to your kids, even for something like Santa Claus, then I probably just wouldn't. I would still celebrate Christmas. I would still get presents for them, but I just wouldn't tell them Santa was real. I mean, I think it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to tell them a lie. You can just sort of let them come to their own conclusions based on their interactions with their schoolmates and whatever else. And I also think kids have such an active imagination that by telling them Santa is real, you're like putting a turbo jet on like their little, uh, you know, their training wheels, basically. Mm-hmm. Like they already yeah. have this insanely active imagination. And the one argument I've heard from people who think that we should tell kids about Santa is, is they say, well, um, like, you know, don't you want them to have any sense of magic and wonder in their life? And then they can, you know, Christmas will have this magical feeling. And it's like, it's like, well, yeah, but there's so much real magic in the world and it kind of discounts that real magic. Yeah. It's, it's like, and then also you're showing your kids that you're a liar and they're going to think of you as a liar. That You're willing to lie about something. Yeah. Now the only good side that I could potentially see, I mean, other than Christmas just feeling magical and I have great memories of Christmas as a kid. So that is also true. But the only real upside I can see is that you may become more, you may become a better lie detector through learning about Santa because you may realize, oh shit, people can lie about this very wide reaching aspect of life that I, you know, frankly, this is one of my big reasons for being a good kid is because of Santa Claus. And, you know, if you're, if so many people can lie about this, including all the, you know, the priests that you know, your parents, your friends, your teachers, your fellow students, then there could be some some widespread lies about other things. Um, mm. So I think that actually might, to me, that's the best argument for allowing the myth of Santa into your children's lives. Yeah, I would I would hope that would come from it, but I'll have to think about that one some more. I think yeah. luckily we've both got a little bit of time, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, for all of our listeners, thank you guys for tuning in to the future of truth and lying. If you guys have any thoughts about Santa Claus, whether it's okay to lie to your kids or any other questions related to this topic, you can reach out to us on 
social media uh, website has the future.com we're going to talk uh, about thank you all what for has joining us what is currently happening and what will inevitably happen the past the present and the future a computer